listener production. Australia Today's Morning Agenda with Natasha Belling. Welcome to another edition of the summer series of Morning Agenda, where we take a look at the major stories that have set the agenda in 2022 in more detail. Today, we're looking at the crisis in Australia's care industry. For many years, our hospitals, childcare and aged care systems have been under increasing pressure, plagued by underfunding, understaffing and a system that in some circumstances seems to focus on profit before people. The COVID crisis highlighted just how much we need these critical industries to function as a society. Without teachers and well-funded childcare, parents can't work. Without hospitals and well-funded frontline staff, our sick cannot get life-saving care. And without well-resourced and affordable aged care, our most vulnerable cannot be properly looked after. These care industries are in crisis. With teachers, aged and childcare workers and nurses and doctors quitting the jobs they love because the systems and they are broken. In the recent federal budget, the new Labor government announced a well-funded paid parental scheme, an important step forward, many experts say, but does it go far enough? At the forefront of this really important debate is Georgie Dent, Executive Director of the Parenthood, and she joins us for this special edition of Morning Agenda. Georgie, thanks so much for joining us. Finally, front and centre in the recent federal budget handed down earlier this year was, of course, paid parental leave. Did it go far enough? After 11 years with no expansion and no improvement to our paid parental leave policy, the announcement that was made in this budget that we're going to move to six months, it is very significant. At the parenthood, our ultimate ambition is a more generous world-leading paid parental leave scheme than what is currently proposed. But at the moment, every single additional week of paid leave that families have access to makes a huge difference. And so the additional six weeks that's been offered is a very meaningful improvement to our policy. So that six weeks is then paid out by the federal government, not the employer? Yes. So it's a 26-week government-funded scheme. When this paid parental leave was first introduced, it was always introduced as a benchmark. Um, And the idea was that employers and the government would both invest in expanding that so that families had access to more leave. And what we have seen is now over half of Australia's biggest companies do offer some parental leave, paid parental leave, but lots of employers don't. So for, for most families, the only paid leave they have available to them is the government funded scheme. And Georgie, in regards to what you think would be the perfect solution, you mentioned earlier in your last answer that you would like it actually to go further in the perfect world where we would see not only better support for working families, but also for the workplace. What would you th- like to see? What would the ideal support package? So in 2021, the Parenthood released a piece of research where we really asked um, a, an economics firm to look at what would be the world leading paid parental leave scheme. And what they came back with, what the research shows is that the world leading scheme would be 12 months of paid leave that's shared between parents and that's paid at a replacement wage rate. Now that is not the longest scheme that's available in the world. There are Nordic countries where families have more than one year of paid leave available to them. But what our research showed is that having one year that's shared between parents creates the optimal return. So you get children get the full benefit of having parents supported at home in that first year, which we know is really good for children. But it also means that mums and dads are able to share the care 
And then that means they both participate in paid work in a sort of more consistent fashion. So if we were to move to a world leading scheme, it would be one year of paid leave shared between parents. But the parenthood acknowledges that that is a big leap from where we are um, right now. And so any improvement is actually very welcome. Georgia, there was a lot of criticism. Some people were saying, why are we paying welfare, which I actually don't like it's being labelled as welfare because I don't think it is, that uh, it was too generous and, you know, they increased the threshold to over $300,000 for both parents, saying that's way too generous, that threshold. What do you think about that, that criticism? So I think that that criticism misunderstands the the sort of the economics of the situation. So the World World Health sorry, the World Health Organization has been recommending since the 1970s that 26 weeks of paid leave is actually required for a health perspective. So paid parental leave is first and foremost actually a health policy because we know that despite the fact that childbirth is something that happens every single day and that you know a, a lot of women will go through it's actually a huge physical transformation and giving birth um, or bringing a newborn into the world, whichever way that happens, it is a huge physiological undertaking. And paid parental leave was developed because it actually enables mothers and babies, first and foremost, to actually recover from childbirth and then establish the the routines and the bonds that set both mothers and children up for lifelong um, sort of improved health outcomes. So it's, it's, it's genuinely not welfare. It is an investment in the health of um, babies and parents and we actually save money in the long run. So the reason that any employer um, offers paid parental leave is because employers actually save money in the long run. When they can keep employees that are skilled and committed and loyal, if they can keep them on after they have parental leave, it's actually cheaper than replacing them. And from a government perspective, it's actually cheaper to give families that support in those early months than it is to let children and babies and mums not have that support and then we have to pay the health consequences later. So it is actually an economic policy um, and everyone, regardless of whether or not you have children yourself, we all stand to benefit from having a population where the health and wellbeing and potential of children is actually realised. Yeah, well said, Georgie. One of the downsides, I think, in particular with COVID is I think a lot of care industries were really struggling and then COVID just absolutely decimated so many of these really important functions in our society, whether that's early ed- education, whether that's the aged care industry. What do you think we can do to really ensure that these vital fundamental services in our society continue? Look, I think you're right. COVID really did make crystal clear to almost everybody how dependent we are upon the the critical caring professions. So things like nursing and aged care and early education and care, we really, as a community, I think, recognise we actually can't function without these things happening. And at the same time, we've realised that the people that are working in those fields are really poorly paid. And with the cost of living pressure that we've got now, in early education, for example, educators are leaving because they can't afford to stay. And, you know, when we've got a a role or a, you know, a job that is absolutely vital for our communities, for our economy, for our children, if we've got people working in those sectors who can't afford to stay, that is a huge problem for all of us. And so one of the things I think we need to be looking at is, is how can we ensure that these critical 
vocations and professions are paid appropriately. And it's something that when you look at, you know, these are female dominated professions. And if you think, so, you know, if you've got a Cert three qualification in um, bricklaying, for example, you earn basically one and a half times what a Cert three mm -hmm. early educator earns. So we're talking about a comparable skill level, but when it's a male dominated um, profession, compared to a female-dominated profession with that same skill level, the pay gap is really substantial. And, and it's something that we have to address because if we don't address that, we're simply not going to have the educators that we need. We're not going to have the nurses that we need. We're not going to have the aged care staff that we need. Georgie, one question I have as for both early education and also aged care is often it costs families a fortune to have their loved ones either in aged care facilities or in childcare. This, the costs are skyrocketing day day after day after day, yet the workers are paid so appallingly. So is that a bigger problem there that many of these industries are profit-based? Yes, absolutely. And I think the issue with having, you know, profit-based um, services like in aged care but also in early education, it has highlighted that huge discrepancy mm. between what the out-of-pocket cost is for families compared to what are the educators or the aged care workers coming away with. And um, one of the examples that I often use is, as a parent, um, all three of my children are now at school, but, and w when they go to the local primary school, I don't have to pay enough to cover the land cost for the school. I don't have to pay for the, for the building upkeep. I don't have to pay for the salaries of all of the teaching staff, all of the administrative staff, because we recognise that public education is a public service. It's the same with hospitals. If, if, if I had to go to hospital tomorrow and I went to a public hospital, I wouldn't be expected as a patient to pay the full out-of-pocket cost of that care I receive or that health care that I receive. We need to move towards early education being like that, where families are not expected to cover the full cost of running an early learning service because it is a really expensive undertaking because it's critically important and it's valuable. Um, but at the moment, we have seen... Over the last 10 years, we've been spending more and more and more on the, on the childcare subsidy, but it hasn't translated into any increase in wages for educators. It also hasn't translated into any sort of meaningful, uniform improvement of child development outcomes. And so when you think about it, it's like, well, what are we spending all this money for? Mm -hmm. The money isn't going where we need it to go because if, if we don't have educators that are able to stay, then children are going to miss out. So we need to look at the money that we're spending and ensure that the way we're spending it is efficient and is creating the most amount of positive impact. Georgia, you're such a great advocate for the care industry. What would you like to see for this very important vital industries moving forward for 2023? Look, what I would love to see is for early educators in particular to be delivered a significant um, pay increase and an improvement in conditions. So we know that in October of 2020, there were just over 3,000 vacancies in early learning services, mm -hmm. so staff vacancies. Now, in August of 2022, there were more than 7,200. So the, vacancy, the staff vacancies have more than doubled in two years. When you look at the number of services that are applying for waivers to, to operate with fewer staff than the quality framework recommends, we've got them happening in record numbers. Now, what that means is for the early educators that are staying, they are now having to try and do even a bigger job 
because there are fewer staff and they're still trying to deliver the same program to children. So if we don't somehow intervene and say to educators, we recognise that the way you're being paid is not fair, you're not able to make a living, and that is going to undermine um, the quality of, of the experience that children have because quality early education and care starts and ends with early educators. So if we don't have early educators, there is no early education. So I would love for in 2023 for early educators to get um, a significant pay rise. Yeah, let's hope so. So important. And it's our future generation, you know, and, and these educators should be paid what they deserve and should be recognised in our society. Georgie, thanks so much for joining us and thank you for being such an important advocate, this very important care industry. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for always being interested in um, these subjects. It is something that I know there are lots of Australians like me who are passionate about making sure we get this right. Well said. Thanks so much, Georgie. Thanks, Tash. Listener.